book of Revelation, <clears throat> we continue in. We've made it to chapter 8. And so if this is your first time journeying with us or last time journeying with us, it doesn't matter. I think a recap would be fitting for us to journey through together. And so I've prepared a recap. It'll be on the screen above. And this will kind of give you a reminder of everywhere we've been in the book of Revelation. And so chapter 1 of Revelation gave us an introduction and it told us that this whole book is about Jesus who's going to tell us some soon coming things. He's the author of the book which is unique to the book of Revelation and so this is where we began the whole thing. Uh, chapters 2 and 3, we, we journey through that, it was the seven letters to the seven churches. So again, the book of Revelation is not this mystical, mythical book. It's a real book written to seven very real churches, just like Capstone, First Wesleyan, First Baptist, Safe Haven. These are real churches that this letter is being written to. And uh, then we got to chapters 4 and 5, and that showed us that the soon coming things or that we would realize eternity. And in eternity, there would be the focal point of heaven. The sky would rip open. The throne would be seen. Uh, we would see the activity in heaven, which would be worship. And then the supreme joy of heaven would be the Lamb. Um, it, again, it wouldn't be Papa. It wouldn't be Mama um, playing golf on beautiful... Um, unparalleled golf courses, all those, those things may be very true. That's not the, the focal point of heaven. The focal point of heaven revolves around Jesus. And so we saw that. We got to chapter 6 and 7, which began the beginning of the end. So again, the beginning of the end being when we ask the question, how does the whole world terminate? How does it end? And this is what we typically think of when we think of Revelation. And so we're reminded that the end will not begin until Jesus begins to read this scroll. And so the whole book of Revelation revolves around this scroll. And when is it going to be read? And what is it going to say? And all we know up to this point is Jesus is the only one worthy to read the scroll. And so that reminds us of why the song says that and all that kind of stuff. So that's where we're at. And to read the scroll, first seven seals had to begin to be peeled off, um, if you will, King's signet ring or maybe tape. Seven pieces of tape have to be removed off of the scroll before it can be unfurled. Every time that a, a seal is ripped off, another avenue of God's judgment and tribulation hits the earth. And so we saw all that. Seal one was open last week. We saw peace. Seal two, then war will begin. Seal three, depression as a result of war. Seal four, pandemic and death and isolation. Seal five, martyrdom increases. Seal six, six cosmic Chaos begins, and then we get to seal seven today. And seal seven is going to kick off seven more trumpet sounds. And those seven trumpet sounds are going to give way to seven bowls. And again, all of this telling us that when the end comes, however it comes about, that it has something to do with an ongoing building crescendo of uh, tribulation. And uh, so again, you may think of some of the movies that you've seen growing up. I'm not sure how all of it plays out. Uh, we'll be reminded of that today as well. But nonetheless, these things intensify. And so the seven seals are pretty harsh. The seven trumpets get even harsher. The seven bowls get even harsher. And so it's God's judgment as He continues to pour out on earth in light of His holiness. So that's where we're at. And so I'm not going to do much explaining today. 
like we have in the, in the past because there were some things uh, before that maybe when you start looking at, okay, there's a white horse and a black horse and a red horse and what does all that mean and what could it mean? Uh, today is self-explanatory. And so I'm just going to read through the text. Um, we'll read it aloud and let God speak. We'll do some commentary nuggets along the way, if you will, especially for those journaling in your Revelation journal. Um, and, and if you're a journaler and you're also an artist, I would love to see what you're doodling inside your art pad at this time. Um, but nonetheless, that's where we're going to get it today. Okay, so let's, let's just jump straight in and dive through the text. We've made it to Revelation chapter 8. So here we go. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, that's where we're at. Jesus is now opening the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, some of you guys will identify with me, and this can only remind me of my mother. That being when we got in trouble as kids, my mom was a fire. She's fiery. She's little bitty. She's a little bitty nothing, but she's fiery. And so when we would do stuff, she'd start throwing shoes at us. And again, not in an abusive way, because she, she don't have enough oomph to be abusive. But she'd throw shoes and, and you know, screaming, and, what are you doing, and all this kind of stuff. Well, when mom did that, everything was okay. We knew that we were in trouble, and we deserved it, but it was still okay. We were like, oh, that's just mom being mom. We knew we were in big trouble when mom got silent. And when she got silent... We knew we was in, <laughs> there was fury and hell to pay after that, okay? We knew that that was coming. Um, well, this is the picture of what's going on. The seventh seal is ripped off, and now there's silence. It's the calm before the storm. It's warning of this, this eerie, dire judgment that is about to unfold. And so that's where we get. So verse 2 says this. When that happened, then I saw seven angels who stood before God and seven trumpets were given to them. As I said before, each trumpet is going to intensify with the sound of a blast. The first four trumpets, when they each sound, ecology itself is going to be disrupted. So there'll be a disruption in the earth's cycle. Then the last three trumpets, when they blast, is actually going to be demonic presence entering into the world in a way that the world has never seen before and actually manifest in a way that it's never seen before. If you will, again, I, I know there's been a lot of parallels to Marvel movies um, and maybe Marvel's onto something, but think Marvel. Think this entering the world in a way that's never seen before. Um, and so that's kind of what is going to happen with the last three trumpet blasts. So with that said, let's jump in. Verse 3. And so another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before uh, God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. So again, tribulation is underway. All mankind is seeing it, experiencing it, however that plays out. And then we get to the trumpet blows. All right, y'all ready? Here we go. Verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Trumpet number one. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth... And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass were burned up. 
So with the sound of the first trumpet, what can you think of that would look like blood flowing in the sky, mixed with hail, and then also have the ability to burn the grass around it? My assumption would be, again, if this is literal, that sounds a lot to me like a volcano, like an eruption of a volcano. So John looks and he says, I, I see this. There's this hell and fire and it's mixed with blood and somehow it has the ability to burn up everything around it. And so the first trumpet blows and some kind of something in the ecological system occurs to where it looks like this to John at the end of times. And then the second trumpet blows. Verse 8, Then the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. So, assuming this is literal, and John is seeing this, and he goes, I don't know what this was, but it looked like a big mountain falling out of the sky. It looked like this big ball of rock falling out of the sky. And so John would have no paradigm for what we know as an asteroid or meteor or something like that. He says, I just see this. I don't, it's, it's coming out of the sky and it hits in such a way that it disrupts a third of the earth. Okay, so this is not just a tiny little meteor. This apparently is some giganto meteor, according to John. Okay, We get to verse 10 and the third trumpet blows. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. Now stars falling from heaven with a tail blazing behind it is what we call a, a comet, right? So maybe this is what he sees. If, if we're assuming this is something, it's some type of comet that falls that's blazing through, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. What does that mean? Well, again, if it's literal, then maybe something falls from the sky, and, and whatever is in it disrupts the microbiology of all of the oceans. This is not something that's foreign to us. As a matter of fact, just a few years ago in California, all kind of fish and everything began to wash up dead on the ocean. You guys remember this. And we called it El Nino. Y'all remember this? And the tide they called Red Tide. Something happened in the ecological system where microbiology got all messed up and animals began to die. So John says, now remember, this is John written thousands of years ago going, I don't know what this is. I'm just telling you what I see. And so this is what he sees with the third trumpet blast. Here we go with the fourth trumpet. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Now, so now we got the fourth blast that blows, and in our culture, we talk a lot about um, uh, climate 
increase in climate change and the rising temperature of the climate. But this describes what? The polar opposite. It's not climate warming that occurs, but it's climbing, climate decrease, I guess you would say. Uh, it will be a cooling of the climate. And so, in the end, what John says is the sun went a, th a third away. A moon went a third away. So there's this radical temperature decrease, which has happened before. We know these things um, in the ice ages and stuff like that. And so imagine, if, but if a third of it began to decrease, what that would not do to just our gardens and our yards, but would do to the entire ecological system. It would be completely disrupted. Nothing could grow, even us, in our relation to sunshine, where we go outside and get some good old vitamin D, would be disrupted. And so it goes dark, and, and so he says, I see this. And so the whole biological cycle is disrupted. Um, and, and then he says, verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. And he said, Woe to those who dwell on earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So, if you've been listening to this already going, whew, that's a lot. John says that an angel shows up and says, hey, if you thought that was a lot, get ready because it's just going to get worse even with these things. And so the whole reminder is that there is this tribulation to come, however it plays out. Whether it's a futuristic thing, whether it's a gradually increasing thing, or, or whether it's even symbolic of ages to come, it doesn't matter where you fall on the theological spectrum. The point remains the same. There is a seriousness coming when the end of the age comes. And it's wrapped with this radical change in earth and, and, and um, mankind even itself is affected. So this is where we're at. So then we get to chapter 9. So chapter 9, the fifth angel blows his trumpet. And now it's no longer about the earth. It now becomes about demons themselves. Fifth angel blows his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. Now this star is going to be different because of the next line. And the star fell to earth and he was given... So this fifth trumpet blow doesn't inaugurate a meteor or anything like that, but an actual being, some demonic presence. Now my assumption would be that this would be Satan himself is released on the earth in a manifest way that he's never been released before. The reason I would say that is because of the next line. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit, which Satan has the domain of. And so we get to this. So now with the fifth trumpet blow, Satan enters the scene. Verse 2, he opens the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. So now we've got an earth with an intense fog hovering over it. Verse 3, then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth like a normal locust would do, or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings somebody. 
And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So now we've got locusts who've entered the scene. <clears throat> and you, you guys, you know, we go to the beach in the summer and we get fear of, man, I sure hope this isn't the year that I get flesh-eating bacteria out of the ocean. <laughs> but now we don't have flesh-eating bacteria. Now we have flesh-eating locusts. We're like, locusts, you guys should be eating trees and vegetation. Why on earth are we feasting on flesh? Okay, so there's, but there's this nagging, he says. There's this constant nagging going on. Now, <clears throat> again, if this is literal, and I want to keep reiterating that over and over and over for two reasons. Number one, I'm not, I don't know where I land on this. I think 50% of the time I think this is incredibly symbolic again, of very real tribulation. doesn't matter if it's symbolic or not. This is very, something very radical is going to happen to see this. And then I also say it, I'm also 50%. I could see how this could be very literal because it is in God's Word and, and it doesn't make a lot of sense for John to say these things and God allow him to say them if they don't occur. Okay, so there's that side of me. The other reason I keep reiterating over and over is I'm not sure how this plays out is because things of this nature are videotaped. And nobody will ever say, well, Troy said that this is what's going to happen. Because we will replay, if, if you post that and say, this crazy pastor thinks that, I'm going to replay the video and go, I told y'all a million times, I'm not sure how this plays out, okay? So, I keep saying that. But, nonetheless, I, I want to read to you something and show you why I keep saying John is seeing things that he has no perspective of, and how what we know now could make sense of some of the things that he's saying that doesn't make a lot of sense. All right, y'all ready? So let me read to you this about locusts. And, and just imagine if you can think of something that if John saw it and he didn't know what it was, that what it could possibly be in our day and time. Okay? So here's what he says. In appearance, these locusts were like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth was like lion's teeth. They had breastplates, and the breastplate surrounding them was iron, and they, had a, they made a noise because they had wings, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They've got tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months and it's in their tails. They've got a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Abaddon. In Greek, he's Apollyon. And the first woe is past and the two woes are still to come. So you think about that. In John's day, he would not have seen the 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang. If you remember in the 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang, China, as they entered in and did the whole uh, launching of the Olympics, they had a Guinness record set where they had 1,218 Intel Shooting Star, is their name, drones, completely synchronized, flying around the sky doing things that the world had never seen before. So what if, what if John is looking to the future going, I see these things, they're flying around and 
And they have the ability to spit fire and, and they're tormenting people and they got the sound of their wings and, and they're all over the earth. It wouldn't be unheard of. It's something that he had no paradigm for. And maybe that's, maybe the, maybe the times are way closer than we think they are. So he goes on to say this. That was the fifth trumpet, but now the sixth trumpet has to blow. Verse 14. Um, verse 13, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had a trumpet, release the four angels who were abound at the river uh, great Euphrates. So now more fallen angels are released. Verse 15 says this, so the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, and I heard their number. Now again, I'm not a good mathematician, but that's just a lot of troops, all right? And so, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. So let's play another game of what could that be? Number one, it could be literal horses. No problem with that. Could be symbolic of something else, could be symbolic of an age. But, again, with our perspective in mind, what could it be in our today's society? So verse 17 continues with, These things that are killing people wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouth. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Now what do we know of that comes out of something like a flash of fire and its remnant smells like sulfur? Ammunition. John has no concept of guns or ammunition or... And it, all he says is there's these things, it's like fire, what comes out of their mouth kills people and it smells like sulfur. So he says these things. Now we're looking at it today going, I gotta, we got all kind of things that look like that. And these things that he sees doing this, here's your, here's your homework for today as we leave out of here. <clears throat> Ghosts, if you haven't already, oh, well, just for fun, how many of you guys, when I say Boston Dynamics and DARPA and the robotics program, have seen some of the stuff that they've done? Just, if you've seen some of that, right? Okay, some of you have, most of you have not. All right, go today and just Google DARPA Boston Dynamics robots. It is the most bizarre thing that you've ever seen that they have now built. They've built these manned robot warriors who can climb stairs, who can climb mountains, who can run. Some of them look like animals. Some of them look like humans. Even the ones that look like humans usually have a, a, a head that looks like some type of dog or something like that. And I'm not kidding you when I say this. These robots are so advanced that there's videos of them standing on boxes, doing back flips off of boxes, landing on their two feet because they figured out how to give them self-balancing mechanisms. Y'all think I'm kidding with you, and I am not. 
There's videos of them hitting them with sticks and trying to knock them over. And these robots have the ability to keep their own balance and all this kind of stuff. So what if John is looking and going, I see these things and there's troops of them. And they're wiping out mankind by the fire that comes out of their mouth that smells like sulfur. Again, not saying that that's what it is. I don't know. But what if? That will make a lot of sense. What if we are really closer than ever before to the end of times? And I'm just going to be honest with you. I hope we are. I hope this whole ball of wax wraps up manana. If the, if that, does that mean tomorrow? <laughs> I hope it happens tomorrow. I hope the end is, is, is nigh. But nonetheless, John is telling us the point is there's a time coming where the end is going to draw near and there's going to be more and more tribulation unlike anything you've ever seen and it's an expression of God's judgment against sin. We'll get to that in just a second as we wrap it up. So let's do wrap it up. Verse 20. And so the rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands. Now that's an odd way to end a whole section on this bizarre tribulation. Which I think is the point. I don't think the point is all of the things at all. The point is, God is serious about sin. And all of these things are culminating, which we'll get to in just a second, because mankind does not repent of his sin. So he says this, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, they didn't repent of the works of their hands. They didn't give up worshiping demons. They didn't give up worshiping idols of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or walk. Verse 21, Nor did they repent of their murderers, of their sorceries, or of their sexual immoralities, or even their thefts. And I think that is enough for us today. It's a good place to pause. Number one, it's a good place to pause just because I'm not sure that we can go on into the rest of um, all of these without going into the bowls because I think we have to get to that next week. I think it all fits together better that way. Um, but... I think it's also a good place to pause and just stop and say, hey, before we go any further, what's the point? Like, John, what is the point? Is the point for you to raise my blood pressure on Sunday morning until we finish the book of Revelation? Like, is that your whole point, John, is to raise my blood pressure? Or is your whole point for many of you, because some of you guys, when you read this, you're like, man, this... This is encouraging my soul. What's the point? I think the point, as it's on the screen, is this. It's to show us that God's been incredibly gracious to mankind. God could have, at any point in history, done all of those things and more. And He'd be perfectly just and right. Why? Because He's God. He's God. He could have, at any point, said, I'm done with it. He could have at any point sliced all of us in half. He could have done all these bizarre things. He could have done anything he wanted to do because he's God. And this is his world. And in that, he's been incredibly gracious 
not to do these things. I think that's one of the reminders, to let us see, God, for years and years and years, you have pent back your wrath and gave us nothing but grace. Praise the Lord, we live in a season of grace. Number one. Number two, it's also to remind us that sin is indeed incredibly offensive to His holiness. Sin is it's never something that we wink and nod at. Yeah, I know that I'm, I'm struggling in this area, but God, Your grace has got me. It's serious. It's so serious that God's saying at some point, my grace will wrap up and it will be nothing but just holiness poured out on the earth. And that is point number three. One day His long-sufferingness will indeed give way to justice and wrath. You see, here's the point. We can't walk around and just simply say trite thoughts like this. Well, God is a God of love and kumbaya. He is a God of love. That is an aspect. But never is it an aspect that overrides His just wrath against sin. God is just as much a God of wrath as He is a God of love. And His love and wrath are not in competition with one another. They are beautifully married together and they coexist intricately in a way that we can't understand. All we can describe is, well, that seems loving or that seems wrathful. But God's not like us. He's not a dichotomy of emotions that express themselves in different ways at different varying times. God is in and of Himself fully loving and fully wrathful at the exact same time. And it's not love and it's wrath. It's He's holy. He's just. He's right. And so when it expresses itself in this way against sinfulness, it's not, that seems very wrathful of God. It's not, it's, that seems very holy of God. And just. Why? Because He did it. And then in other times where God is very gracious, it's not God is very loving, it's God is holy. He is just. He is right. At the exact same time. And so... This points us to one day His long-sufferingness will give way. And so, what do we do with that? What does that point us to? Well, I think in a weird way, and, and just track with me for a second, and I think this will make sense. I, I was talking to Marianne Cooper. If you don't know Marianne, Marianne, um, she sings, she works with the female students and the student ministry. And, and <laughs> if you know Marianne... It, the majority of her conversations always begin with, hey, I was thinking this thought, am I crazy for thinking? <laughs> Insert the blank. And she'll say something. And, and so the other day she said to me, and she said something to me that kind of like a, was a light bulb to me, and it's something I've never thought about, and I think it ties into this. She said, Troy, are we supposed to worship the Lord and interact with the Lord in rawness or reverence? I said, Mary, and I, I've never thought about that. And then she went on to say, what I'm trying to get at is, does the Lord want us to come to Him just raw? Just guts exposed, blah. Hey, 
And people say it things like this, hey dad, or hey homeboy, or hey God, you know, just kind of this raw, like we're talking to anybody else. You should just talk to God like anybody else, just raw. This is what stinks, this is what's great, this is what, you know, God, you should do this. And can we come to God just raw? And is that how you want us to come to Him? Or does God want us to come to Him reverent with a holy other? Not daddy homeboy, but like Isaiah. Woe is me as I stand before you. I know my place in light of you. How do we come to the Lord? And so as I've thought about that, there is an aspect of this delicate balance going on. And sometimes we come to the Lord raw. In, in, because we're, we're people who know our thoughts, our actions, our posts on Facebooks, our habits, our drinking, our eating, our attire, our mouth, our minds. It's that notion of we know, if we're believers, that we're already righteous, but not yet. <laughs> like we feel that. We feel that tension, don't we? And that's kind of that, that rawness of, God, positionally I know where I'm at with you, but presently, blah, this is what I feel. So there's that rawness because we're, we're not just fallen people in our actions, our habits and all that kind of stuff, but we're fallen people in our spiritual pursuits, aren't we? We feel our fallenness in our prayers, in our Bible study, in our evangelism, in our community in our all of these things, in our parenting, in our spousing, in our dating, in our singleness, in our, even our worship. In our, we, we feel the rawness in our diligence, don't we? Band singing, and we're just like, I just don't feel it today. Like we feel that, like that rawness. Okay, we we get that. But then there are sometimes where we we understand the reverent aspect, don't we? We realize I really am a part of a kingdom of priests, and so as a priest before God, I approach God in holy awe. Would an Old Testament priest? ever approach the throne of God in rawness? Anyone? Not from what we see in Scripture. As a matter of fact, when the priest approached the Holy of Holies, they attached to him a what? Y'all know. A bell. And what will they tie around his waist or his foot? A rope. Why? Because if any priest walked before the Holy of Holies and found in him something unworthy, the bell would stop ringing, signifying that he had dropped dead. The rope would be attached to his foot so that they could do what? Pull that brother out. And so it was this reverence. So we feel this too. We feel this, God, this is your building. We want to be careful about what's allowed done in here. God, this is your house. Not this, but y'all's house. We want to be careful of what we allow in here. God, this is your temple. I want to be careful of what's allowed in here. God, this is your money. I want to be careful with what this is spent on. God, this is your TV. I want to be careful with what's watched on it. God, this is your radio. I want to be careful of what's done on it. God, this is your computer. I want to be careful of what's done on it. 
And we feel that as well, that you are holy other, I'm a kingdom of priests, and I'm a saint, so I'm not going to call you homeboy, I'm going to call you, you are Lord, God Almighty, and you deserve my reverence in all things. So, my point is, how do we approach God in rawness or reverence? And then I read a passage like this, and I'm reminded of how big God is and how He deals with sin. And I go, I'm not sure that it has either to do with rawness or reverence, but just am I coming to Him consistently? Whether raw or reverent, I don't think it's the point. The point is, in light of all of these things, am I coming to the Lord daily, every moment? Consistently, as a single, as a mother, as a father, as a husband, as a child, as a co-worker, as a church member, as a Christian. Am I marked by consistent pursuit of the Lord? And I think that squarely is the whole thing that this passage is pointing us to. Yeah, I do hope that you go home and have some awesome conversations. I hope you have conversations with your friends like, whoa, could, like, do you think that's drones or do you think that's robots or do you think that's locusts or do you think it's all symbolic or it's like, I hope you have all of those conversations, yes. But if that's where your conversation terminates, I think you missed the point. I think the point is all this is coming, but God is holy, sin is serious. Am I pursuing Him daily? Am I consistent? Am I coming to Him in my rawness? Am I coming to Him in my reverence? Am I coming to Him? Does He mean that much to me? I think that's the point of Revelation. So with that said, the Word of God for the people of God. Brett, come on back up. And I trust that God is doing in you like He's doing in me whatever He wants to do through this bizarro section of Scripture. <clears throat> and what points us to both our ability to come to Him in raw and reverence? It's the Gospel. The whole passage ends with and points to the Gospel. Again, did you notice how it ended? All of these things are occurring and some people still aren't repenting. Point being, God is calling us to repent of our sin. The point is, is the gospel keeps us in the center line and avoids us from bumping the uh, guardrail of rawness or the guardrail of reverence. The gospel calls us to just come. Come. Pursue. Right down the line. It reminds us that, yes, the end is coming and it's intensely serious, but that our only hope is Christ Jesus. No other claimed deity gets you there. No one is worthy to open the scroll but Christ. No works get you there. It's Christ alone. And so He is that line. And so again, I don't know how to make all sense of this text, but... I think biblically we know how to make sense of salvation. That being that whether the end comes next week, next month, or today, or in the next three seconds, this is always fun. 
Didn't happen. Still coming. All right. Whatever. Whenever it comes, what did we do with Christ? What I do know to be true is this, that our sin has caused more of the gap than we could ever dream or imagine, so much so that the Lord would destroy the earth. I do know that. I do know that we had no way to cross that divide and get to, back to God. I do know that based on Christ's authority, He stepped out of eternity and lived the life we couldn't live, lived the life we wouldn't live, fulfilled all of the law of God because we couldn't. And then He bore the wrath of God. And He bore it on the cross as we get a glimpse of cosmic chaos. And the world begins to shake. Think about that. When Christ is on the cross, all the angels are ready going, here we go. We're about to bust this scroll wide open. And the earth begins to shake and earthquakes and the sun and moon go dark. And even the sun and moon is like, this is the time. This is the book of Revelation. Like, this is the moment. But it wasn't. And he dies. And the wrath of God is poured out not on the earth at that moment, but on Christ. So in that moment, Christ really does bear like the book of Revelation, in a sense. He dies, he's placed in a tomb, and on the third day he rises again, proving that God accepts his sacrifice, allowing him to conquer death for us. I do know that to be true. Sin is serious, it created a gap. Christ is awesome and gracious, and he bridged that divide. For those who would, according to Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ was raised from the dead, you shall be saved. And so what does this passage call us to do? If you're a believer, rejoice that that's true. If you're an unbeliever, call on Christ today for your salvation. Let's pray.